0: Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each Sunday, you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible study class led by Pastor Jim Otte. This week, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew titled, Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy.
1: All right, so let's get started uh, on the second of our lessons uh, today as we're still kind of setting a little bit of the foundation for why it is that the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 5 to 7, that's in, in a specific way, why, why it is or what it is that Jesus was intending uh, for not just his disciples, but also for us as his you know, 21st century disciples Uh, why of what value that is for us in life. So to kind of go back and look just briefly at um, some to review some things from last last week, from our last session, number one, to be loved is the willingness of another person to make sacrifices on your behalf. So notice that we talked about that last time. What does it mean to be loved? What does it mean to belong to something? Um, and the, the focus was not on how you feel or how somebody else makes you feel, but the fo- it not, it's not on the emotional side, but it's rather on the willingness of somebody to make sacrifices for you. The second thing we talked about was to belong is to be welcomed. And to have a place at the table. I was thinking about that with respect to this week is that sometimes the place at the table is earned and other times the place at the table is is granted or given as a result of 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 the grace of that person rather than uh, something that you've earned. So, for example, how many of you have been watching the uh, basketball playoffs? the, the, the uh, college. Okay. So when somebody wins their way into the final four, for example, what they'll often say is now they have a place at the table, right? But it's not because somebody gave it to them. It's because they won the game because they worked hard. It's because they earned that position. That's a place at the table. They're welcomed into that part of the tournament. But what we're talking about here, when we talk about belonging in terms of our relationship with God, the issue there is nothing's been earned. Everything that we have from God, the standing we have with God, the fact that we're loved by him, forgiven, all those kinds of things, all of that is a gift of his grace. And so therefore it's not, it's not earned. It's, uh, it's given. Would you say that when someone has a place at the table in terms of that uh, belonging, is there responsibility that goes along with that? Or is is it just that you have the privilege of it, you have the gift of it, and it's yours to enjoy, it's yours to celebrate, but there's not a sense of responsibility. What do you think about that? And I don't really know. I'm just kind of asking. What's your sense of that? Yes, Mary.
2: We're saved to serve.
1: We're saved to serve. So that would suggest that The the salvation that we have is not simply for our for us to enjoy like oh I'm I'm sure glad I'm saved and then that's it right but that there is some sense of responsibility or maybe opportunity we could say in terms of other people very good all right and then the third one was that in our baptism. We were clothed with the same promises that, ga- that God gave to Jesus in his baptism. So we go back to those words of, uh, of God's affirmation, if you will, to Jesus. You are my son, or this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Those same promises are personalized for us in our baptisms. And the Galatians passage that we looked at uh, last week, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, reminds us of that. That when we're baptized into Christ, then those promises that are are of Jesus we are now clothed with us. We now put those promises on ourselves. And so then to personalize it, it becomes, you are my child whom I love with you, I am well pleased. Okay? So that's where we, uh, that's kind of where we ended last week in terms of the material that we covered. And the... Uh, the drawing, if you will, or the graphic that I put up on the board is intended to be something that we would then build on. So the, the circle with the triangle in it is God. God does what? He reaches out to you and to me by, by his grace. And then we, in response to his grace... We have faith, which again is a gift from God, but the faith is our response back to God, right? And that's kind of how that cycle works. That's how how that flow works. Well, it's not just us and God, but there's also other people. So what happens is when we give a witness... Uh, a form of, of graceful relationship, if you will, with other people, then what happens is, is that that love and that grace from God flows through us to other people, and they in turn also then have the opportunity, they also have the wherewithal to be able to also come, uh, come to faith. And so you can see where what happens is, is that it's not just simply, oh, I am saved and oh, now I can really enjoy it. Um, But as Mary pointed out, we're saved to, to serve. Yeah. And part of that service is the witness. Okay. So as we follow the, the, uh, the sequence here, if you will, in Matthew, we have Jesus being baptized and then immediately after his baptism, what happens in Matthew four, he goes out to save the world, right? Nope. What happens? Yeah. The spirit of God leads deliberately and intentionally leads Jesus into the desert, into the wilderness for the specific purpose of being tempted by the devil. So that's the next thing in the sequence. So what the, the connection for us then is, is that in our baptism, God lays claim to us as his beloved. He says, you are my beloved my beloved, you are people that belong to me. And now he's going to go out into the wilderness and have that tested. That's going to be part of his mission. And what we discover in terms of a a parallel is this is exactly the same thing that happens to us. All right. So the first part says the threats to our confidence in that claim come in different forms. All right. Now, where would our confidence be? There's never going to be a threat to the grace because that's coming from God, right? And God himself is stronger than anything that is going to threaten that. But what really has the potential of threatening this flow or this cycle is the faith right there, right? And so when you think in terms of what might be a threat to your faith life, What we discover is that those are the same threats that Jesus himself faced as well in his temptations. All right. So the first of the threats, the first of the things that threaten our faith is uh, is what our sinful flesh is what the scriptures refer to. So what are we talking about when we say sinful flesh? That's the impulsive instinct to disobey God to be self-centered in our choices in life, and to make conscious decisions to sin. Would somebody read Galatians 5, 19 to 21, please? Out loud? Oh, would you please? Okay, thank you.
2: Um, The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, Selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God.
1: Anybody jealous of those things this past week? Or some form of it, right? It's a pretty extreme list, is it not, right? And yet, what is his point? What's his point? I mean, is his his point the idea that okay, let's see, we're going to go through those, and I'll pick out the ones that I did, and I'll pick out the ones my neighbor did, and as long as the ones my neighbor did is more than the ones I did, I feel better, right? Is that his point? No, I don't think so. Tom, is that is that? It's it's a new insight. I hadn't thought of it that way. Oh, well, maybe a new way to use it then. Yeah, we're here to help any way we can, right? All right. So, one of the things that we discover when we look at a list like this is number one, is that each of those carries the potential of becoming addictive. Have you noticed that? See, each one of those may be standing by itself and maybe only done once, okay, once. You think, okay, what's the harm in that, even though there is, right? But what if that becomes a repetitive part of your life? The capacity of those to take over your life, the capacity of those to become the thing that you serve in life, or you think will give you what you want in life. That capacity is very high. And you look at any one of those and you see that they take on a power, a power of their own, because what's addictive about them is, is that they, they can and often do for some people offer an escape from the pain of not being loved or the pain of not belonging. And so then the, the sad part about this or the, uh, the greater effect of it is, is that they pull you away from God by demanding your full attention to them. And if it doesn't become your God, at least at the very least, what happens is God takes a, he, he becomes second class to you. Okay. So you think of that from that perspective, like it, it's probably pretty easy for us to look at sexual immorality and say, oh, yeah, that would be very addictive. Debauchery. Oh, yeah, that would be very addictive. Idolatry and witchcraft. That would be very addictive. It's really easy to look at some of those and say, oh, yeah, those are very addictive. Well, what about selfish ambition? Could that become addictive? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, oh what about uh, jealousy? Could that become addictive? Yeah. See, the potential is there for all of those things. And that's why when Paul says, those who live like this, now he's not talking about, oh, every once in a while you go there. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about this becomes your life. This becomes in in, in many ways who you are. And if you continue down that path, right, then what happens is it's not getting in the way of the grace but it's starting to erode and impact in a negative way, the faith. That's a threat to your sense of being beloved and your sense of belonging. Okay. The second threat is the world. The Bible talks a lot about the world. You are, Jesus says, you know, you're in the world, but you're not what? Of the world. Yeah, exactly. So when we talk about the world, what we're really talking about is the popular culture of whatever age, it could have been St. Paul's age, but now we're talking about our age, right? It's the popular culture that is opposed to God's word. Would someone read uh, Ephesians 6, verse 12, please? Yes, Sandy. For, For our
2: struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil.
1: Okay, so when the Bible talks about the world, it's not simply talking about the idea of the culture in the sense of what people believe, what people promote, but there is a greater, darker thing going on that's driving the world, right? It's kind of interesting now, all of the uh, controversy over Facebook. Right, have you been kind of following that? And, and of course Zuckerberg is now apologizing for you know, how data is being used and all those kinds of things. How many of you are, are on Facebook? How, how many of you may not be on it tomorrow? Huh? Yeah, I mean that's, a, that's kind of what we're all kind of wondering about is what's happening to the data. But when you think about the, one, of the, one of the impacts of, of uh, social media is that the way the world thinks can start to impact the way that you and I think. And uh, if you ever wanted to see a, a, uh, or become aware, I think, of a, of a difference there, is the difference between talking to people that are under 30 versus people that are over 30. Is that difference is so striking and is so stark, particularly even in uh, areas of life and, and, uh, and, and our Christian faith, where traditionally we have said, for example, th- certain things are right and wrong, right? I, I saw a study, uh, the results of a study, uh, a poll that was taken, I think, by Barna, or it might have been the Pew uh, Research Center. Just this, these, these uh, facts came out just, just this week, or at least I just saw them this week, um, is that um, traditionally, even in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, people have said, for example, abortion is wrong, and probably for most people in, the, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand on this, but for most people in this, in this room would say abortion is wrong. Well, the, the, uh, the research uh, poll that was taken came out and said that 46% of Missouri Synod Lutherans do not believe abortion is wrong. Now, they did not say what the age bracket is, but I suspect that the age uh, breakdown is that much younger people say that it's not wrong, or at least it's not absolutely wrong. There may be some conditions there, but I would say that probably the breakdown age-wise is that the older you are, the more you would say traditionally. Hand up.
0: Um, I was just going to bring out the fact that the way that question is worded could really slant Mm -hmm. the answers.
1: It can and we want to be aware of that when we're when we're looking at polls and things like that. But the, my point is is that 25 years ago, that same question was asked, and that 46% was way down there. It was in the teens. So if they asked the question the same way, I mean, then it would be apples to apples. Okay. But it's just the, it's to make that it's to make that point. Yeah, Keith. I've also, seen research showing that that's not one two breakdown. It's actually a three. There's a window in the middle that has this, your older people are wrong and your very young people think it's wrong, but the people in the middle are the ones okay with it. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? So where the breakdown is, is not always obvious, but again, when you look at some of these polls over time, what you see is, and and this would be the question for us in the church, is the church influencing the world or is the world influencing the church? And if the church isn't influencing the world, what part of that is on us? Frankly, I think that's a fair question for us to ask. And maybe it's a little bit of a self-critical question, but maybe we assume some things that are no longer true. Maybe we assumed in the church, oh, everybody already knows that. Oh, everybody already believes what we believe. Oh, there's a church on every corner. So it must be that we're still Christian and we still uh, hold to those Christian values. Maybe we made those assumptions and got lazy. And when you get lazy, then what happens is you stop talking. Maybe what you do is you stop witnessing, right? And you become way more focused on me and God and God and me. And then we're not really thinking about the guy out there. We're not really thinking about the way in which we have the opportunity and maybe the responsibility to be talking. And maybe Facebook is a, is a place to do that. It might be. Or some other, you know, human-to-human, face-to-face sort of thing. Does that make sense? So it's, again, it's, it's, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't remove us from our responsibility. If anything, what it says is there is this wonderful opportunity Right. Because in in a world where people don't know or at the very least they're confused, who's going to give that clear message and what will that clear message be? Okay, so another threat to. This, uh, this uh, flow, if you will, of grace and faith, it, next page, is the devil himself. And that's what we see in the temptations that Jesus faced when he was in the, uh, in the wilderness. And so the, the, the threat itself is that the temptations which are designed to cast doubt on the fact that we are beloved by God and that we belong to him. The uh, Matthew 4, 1 to 3. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. It's kind of interesting always that when we read that, we see that little word if. And we wonder, did the devil not know that Jesus was the son of God? Did he not know that? Oh, no, he knew But what it is, is that he's seeking to cast doubt in Jesus's mind of what it means to be the son of God. And what he's, the the seed that he's trying to plant in the devil's mind is basically, if you're the son of God and God just told you that you are his son and you are his beloved son, then why are you having to go hungry? You see the doubt there? Because the conclusion would be, well, if I'm the son of God, if I'm the beloved child of God, then I ought to never go hungry, right? I ought to always have enough of and more of what I need to do whatever it is that I think my life is about. And so each of those three temptations sort of ties into that. Yeah, Gina.
2: I just said he's very good with that word. What's that? The devil is very good with that word, if.
1: Yes. Yes. Or since he
2: likes to play that on you,
1: he does. And notice how often it works. Have you noticed that? Yeah. I mean, we—you'd think that eventually we would see, uh, see through that. And yet, that's exactly what he does. So he's attempting to do what? He's attempting to erode Jesus's faith, if you will, in the promises that his father gave to him. Yeah, Bob. It's the
0: same argument he gave in the Garden of Eden.
1: Did God really say? It's casting doubt on. The word of God. That is correct. That is correct. You know, uh, how many of you have teenagers in your life? How many of you have, how many of you know what a teenager is, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's a certain species of creature, right? Yeah. There's a, that's a, the one enters into it and I don't know if they ever get out of it. Uh, my doctor one time said, you're just 14. So I don't know. I don't know what he meant by that, but, uh, but but anyway is that, what is it that when a teenager or just maybe a human or maybe a husband right I don't know Bill huh when when uh, when a teenager does something and you have said that they shouldn't What is it that usually reflects exactly the devil's words here almost, uh, Bob? What is it that the teenager usually says in uh, response or reaction to the adult person saying you shouldn't have done that? All my friends are doing it. Well, besides all my friends are doing it. Yeah, that would be a good one. All right. What else does the uh, teenager say? <laughs> the, devil the devil made me do it. All right. I was the one I was thinking of is that the teenager says, well, you know, you didn't say exactly the thing that I shouldn't do, but you said this, and but you didn't include that, right? That's exactly what the devil was doing with, with Adam and Eve, is it not? And that's what's going on in his, uh, his temptations of Jesus as well. So the beloved life principle number four, at the core of Satan's temptations is for you to doubt, D-O-U-B-T, doubt that God loves you. See, that's the thing that the devil's the most interested in. If he can get you to doubt the very thing that God promised you in your baptism, that he promised you when he went to the cross, when he sent Jesus to the cross, if, if the devil can get you to doubt that, he's got you. Because if I, if I doubt the very word and promise of God himself, then what else is it that I have that, or that I will turn to that will give me confidence and faith and all those kinds of things in my life. If it's not God, what's it going to be? The world. And with the world, it's me, right? If I can't trust in God, then I'm going to have to trust in myself. If I can't trust in myself, what am I going to do? I'm going to look around for other people that sound reliable, other people that seem to offer the thing that I'm looking for, the problem is they can't deliver in a sustainable way if it's not God. And furthermore, if it's not God, then grace is not a part of the equation. If it's just based on me, then ultimately it's going to end up being something to do with my performance, my achievement, my acquisition of things in life and many of those addictive kinds of things that we talked about in the Galatians passage. So see, that's the thing that the devil wants to try to get us to do. And that is a very real threat to this is that if you think in terms of faith as being your confidence in the promises of God, if he can get me to doubt that, then I'm already on the wrong path. And so part of that deal with doubting the love is, is if God really loves you, then why are you hungry? See, that's why he goes to the, he goes right to Jesus with that, with that very first temptation. What he's implying is if you're the beloved of God, then you ought not to be hungry. And that has then fits in with all the rest of the temptations as well. Then if, if you're the son of God, if you're the beloved, then why don't you have any followers? Why is it that it's just you here and you don't have, where's the masses? Where's the throngs of people that supposedly would follow you? Now, what was uh, the devil's answer to that? If you want more followers, what do you do? Jump off the temple, right? If you jump off the temple and everybody's there to see it, and then all the angels in heaven come down and they swoop down and they catch you so that you're not going to break your foot against the stone. Do you think that would make an impact on the number of followers Jesus would have had? Yeah. Yeah. People would flock to him. Right. All for the wrong reasons. Right. But nonetheless, he would have those followers. And then, of course, the last temptation was if you just bow down and, and worship me, I'm going to give you everything that you can imagine. And again, it's the same idea. Uh, if you're the, the beloved of God, well, then why don't you have all the resources to do the good that you want to do? Okay. Yeah, Richard.
0: It kind of strikes me how important listening is in each of these.
1: How listening is? It's striking you how important listening is? Okay. You have to say more about that. Whether we are listening to people that come to us or people are listening to, we'll say, our concerns. Okay. Okay.
0: Uh, and, and we fail to respond to those. Okay. That creates that breakdown that could lead to any number of these. All you know? right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I just am struck by how important listening to God, listening
1: to others, and you know, listening to people that have problems. Sure. Sure. Comes in all of these. Mm-hmm. And part of it is keeping ourselves in tune in, in, on a regular basis with God's word. Because again, it, see, part of it is the idea of listening and reading and meditating and all those kinds of things that we do with respect to our, our spiritual walk. If I'm not doing that on a regular basis, the feeding of that then is, is marginalized when you compare it to all the other things that I'm filling my mind with all the other things that I'm listening to on a daily basis. Right. And so that gets into a little bit of this idea of, of, uh, if, if you were to break down your day, for example, keep a, let's say you kept a log of your activities during the day. How many, have you ever done that? Any of you ever done that before? Yeah, some of us do that on a regular basis to prove to somebody else that we're actually doing something during the day, right? All right, and, uh, and sometimes that gets recommended, and there's other times when uh, some of us do that because we want to look for the places in the day where we're wasting time or we're being maybe less efficient with our time. Now, some of us do it, and we look at it, and we go, yuck, and we tear it all up, and we say, we'll never do it again, all right? But if you were to do that on the basis of how much time you spend listening to God's stuff versus how much time you spend in all the other worldly stuff that we do, what would that ratio look like is the question I'm asking. (laughs) What would that ratio look like? See, yeah, and and so that would be a good reason to do that, right? That would be that would be a, a bit of a uh, shock for most of us if we were really truly candid with ourselves, if we really truly were honest with ourselves about how we do that. And so, if the ratio is messed up, guess what? We can actually do something about that, right? Now, it doesn't mean oh, you you can't spend time doing other things, but even in terms of your conversation life, for example, with other people? How much of that conversation is guided by godly kinds of things versus conversation that's guided by worldly kinds of things? So I would make that as a challenge maybe for you to give that some thought as to, uh, as to something that you could do. All right, now we're following the sequence, all right? So the sequence is Jesus... He uh, was baptized. He, the, the affirmation of how his father uh, feels about him and what he declares about him happens in the baptism. Then he goes out and he gets tempted by the devil. And by the way, how did he overcome the temptations by the devil? How did he do that? What did he say? Yeah, it is written. All right, so so they were sort of the battle of the Bible here, uh, so to speak, um, and uh, and the devil continues to be defeated by the power of the word. And then at the end of that segment, uh, we're told that the angels came to minister to him. All right, then immediately after that, following the sequence, is that Jesus begins his earthly ministry, and the things that he does initially in his early ministry are, he goes out, he does preaching and teaching. That's in in, uh, 12 to 17 of chapter four. Then he calls his first disciples and invites them to do what? Now we remember that the first of his disciples were uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and their profession was what? fishing. So it makes perfect sense that Jesus would go to them and use that sort of analogy of here your life has been up to this point uh fishing for fish, right? And Jesus then says, "Come and follow me, I'm going to make you fishers of men." I suggest that that's what this is about here, right? That we are saved to do what? We're saved to serve and part of that service involves being a fisher, uh, fisher of men. And so then what happens, he's then with those four, he, uh, he goes out and resumes the, uh, the, the mission that God has uh, placed on him, which is to heal the sick. And that's what then leads us into Matthew five, where we now begin with the Beatitudes of, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew five, one to 12, we're going to start with verses one to two. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And then he said, what's what do you notice right away? A distinction being drawn here. Crowds of people versus disciples, right? There's a distinction being drawn that here in the Sermon on the Mount. Anyway, Jesus is guiding and instructing his disciples I would sort of argue in some sense of what it means to be God's beloved, what it means to belong to God, but also what it means to be a fisher of men. That in other words, the tie in for me is, is that as Jesus is, is saying, here's what it means to be beloved. As you are acting that beloved life out, other people are watching. Other people are seeing it. And as other people see the distinctiveness of that perspective of life on you, then people will say, I want that. Or they'll say, you know, there's something about you, I can't quite put my finger on it, but there's something about you that is so different from everybody else, what is it? Or they'll say, you know, I've been watching you, and I've seen how you have have managed in this job that we both share in this, this life that we have for this employer. And I've seen this employer treat you so poorly. And I'm amazed that you're handling it as well as you are. What is making the difference for you? Does that make sense? Yeah. Mary.
2: I'm thinking of Job. Job. And all of he went through all of his tests and trials. And the people finally told him, You need to curse God for all these terrible things. It wasn't really his words. It was his actions. People are watching our actions. (coughs)
1: Yes. (coughs) How
2: we handle the tests of life.
1: Yeah, and included in that is what we say right? I mean, sometimes we underestimate that a little bit, and we're going around, and we're moaning and groaning, or we're getting real mad, and then somebody will say, boy, yeah, you really were upset about that, and then and then we say something like, well, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just venting, right? We'll say that. We use that word quite common. Somebody vented to me the other day on, uh, on email, and uh, because it was my brother, I was okay with it, but... Uh, <laughs> And partly because I did earn it. So, you know, there's that part of it, too. But, you know, sometimes what happens when we vent and in our in our minds, venting is sort of like its own category. And because you attach the the label venting to it, that makes it okay whatever it is that we say and whatever it is we do. Right. But, you know, not everybody realizes that we're venting at the time that we're venting. And sometimes the people that hear it are thinking, Ooh, is that what you really think? Ooh, is that how you really are? And we fail to realize that in that moment of stress, we're witnessing. See, in our minds, we think, Oh, witnessing, oh, that means the times when I'm telling people about Jesus and and all about forgiveness and all about the love and, and all about the way the Holy Spirit works in your life. That's witnessing. Well, no, it's a form of witnessing, but. Witnessing is really actually just, how are you living your life? And then when people come up to you and they say, well, how, wh- what's the reason for that? That's what witnessing is. See? And so that's where the caution is for us to, to, I think, be more mindful of that so that we're aware of the fact that as a Christian, you're always on with your own family, with your employer, with your fellow uh, church members in the parking lot at Walmart. Okay. I mean, wherever it is with that person who just took your parking spot, you know, whatever it is that is still, there still is a witness going on. And so again, you know, okay, that convicts us, doesn't it? That kind of nails us. But the joy of forgiveness means that we can celebrate our forgiveness. We know we're forgiven and we can maybe up the game a little bit. Yeah. Well, I had
2: one of those moments, which I guess would be somewhat of a bad witness. Yeah. I was at work a long time ago huh? and I was venting.
1: Venting? Yes. Okay. That makes it okay. You were venting. Yeah.
2: Venting or griping about a co worker and the girl that I was talking to, and she goes, well, that's a very Christian attitude. Well, that to me is what I refer to as a God smack moment.
1: A God smack moment. Kind of smack me. <laughs> Did you hear what she said? A God smack moment when... She
2: yeah. says, well, that's a real Christian attitude. And that, I mean, I felt like she just popped my bubble and I was like, oh God. Yeah. I, you're right.
1: Yeah. Did you thank Jesus for that moment? Did you do that? <laughs> No, not at that moment. Yeah, 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 Cindy.
2: I have one, it's the opposite, but I have plenty of those too. So I'm not mm. trying to say that i better, but I had to go to Walmart Friday it was new prescriptions, and it took an hour because they did one thing. My insurance company changed it, so it took them a whole hour. They had to redo them like three times. Uh-huh. So they'd tell me, to be, okay, it's fine. So I'd sit there on the bench. I went to my shop and came back. Well, by the end, I was like, there's nothing I can do. There's not going to be anything gained by me yelling at these poor people who are doing the best they can. Sure. So I didn't. <coughs> so the one lady who, uh, you know, finally took me, she goes, thank you so much for your patience. And then the pharmacist had to talk to me. She goes, thank you for your patience. So people really do yeah. notice and see that because you know, those poor people at Walmart, they get beat up constantly. <laughs> That's right. Said, thought yeah. Right beforehand. Yeah. So even if you don't think it makes a difference, sure. even if they don't say anything, it doesn't. Right. But I have had plenty of those. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. God smack moments. That's I think we have a new phrase that we can now use in our uh, in our in our class, right? God smack moments. And isn't it ironic? That sometimes the smacker of the God smack moment is somebody that you didn't know was watching you as closely as they are. And maybe even that person is a bit ambivalent or could even be in some way antagonistic toward Christianity, the church, God, etc. And you didn't know that. Because they didn't give you any evidence that, that like, you know, you're walking around with them and they're like going, oh, wait a minute, let me write that down. Because that's just like a perfect quote. They're not doing that, right? You didn't even know they were listening. You didn't even know they were affected by anything you did until you blew it. And again, that's where we, we lean back on God's forgiveness, don't we? We sure do. What would be a way to repair that moment with that person? What would be a way to do that as a form of the witness that we're giving? You know, that person saw me at one of my worst moments. Okay, that I'm, I'm dead, dead as a doornail on that one. But is there a way to go back and repair that with that person to at least repair the witness? Opportunity that might still be there. Expressing gratitude, expressing gratitude like saying, I'm glad you pointed that out to me that, you know, that's not who I am and I shouldn't be doing that. Oh, okay. So that would be a form of, of, uh, kind of explaining, but also apologizing. Is that kind of what you're saying? All right, good, good. Yeah, Max. I just asked him to forgive me. I say, well, you're right. Forgive me for doing that. Oh, okay. So so taking personal responsibility for that and not just saying, well, you know, I'm venting. You know, I mean, that's sometimes what we do. So so personal responsibility would be to say. Uh, I apologize for that. All right. Anybody else thoughts on repair, repair?
2: Well, and that's what I did when she called me on the carpet. I said, you know, you're right. And that was that was wrong of me to be acting that way. And I appreciate you pointing that out to me. That's good. And she kind of was like, well, I didn't mean I'm like, no, no. What you did was right. Yeah. Yeah. And, And really brought it to my attention. What I was doing was very wrong.
1: Okay. So when you do that, see, this is a good thing about repair. The good thing about repair is now the witness can continue in a positive way. See, now the the opportunity to go deeper into the witnessing is 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 available is available because part of it is is that when we're acting in ways that are not consistent with what we preach, then what happens is there's a legitimate criticism that comes back toward us that says, Well, you guys don't practice what you preach, you're a bunch of hypocrites. But when you repair it, when you repair it, when you repair it that way, what you're doing is actually keeping the communication line open because the claim cannot be made that you're a hypocrite. The, the claim that is made and legitimately so is that you're a sinner, forgiven and willing to look at yourself and say, yeah, and that includes me too. See? So in that moment, a very humble moment, what happens is the line of communication that at that point was severed is now open again. And that's what repair does. Okay. So that's really good. That's really great. And you actually did that? Okay. Max, you actually have done that before? Okay. And Tom, we're going to hold you accountable for in the future. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Very good. All right. So, uh, so Jesus, so Jesus draws his disciples apart. And what he says is, now I'm going to teach you guys what it means to be recipients of the grace and to have full confidence in the promises of God, given the threats that are real. And you see, that's the thing that, that we now have to realize as Christians, is that once you come to faith in Christ, however you do it, and whenever in your life that you do it, you now, you now have a target on your forehead. And the target is, of course, the devil himself targeting us, but it's also the world. And it's also our sinful flesh and our tendencies to go our own direction instead of God's. And the beauty of it is, is that staying strong in God's grace through the word will strengthen our faith back to him. And it will empower our witness to other people as we are fishers of men. Make sense with me so far. Okay. So let's get into tackling a couple of the uh, of the blesseds are, if you will, in terms of the beatitudes. So the first one he says, "Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some of the translations, Uh, take that word blessed, and they use the word happy. You might have seen that in some of the translations or paraphrases, happy are the poor in spirit. Um, I've tried to uh, sort of steer us away from that word happy because that word is so misunderstood and so overused in our world today. When people say happy, what does that sort of suggest? that you sort of have this giddy kind of, you know, emotional high that you're constantly on. And so that's kind of why I've stayed away from that and preferring to use the word the to use the word blessed. The Greek word is makarios, all right? And so what makarios is talking about here is a godly joy that cannot be taken away in this life. It's a contentment that's based on a beloved relationship with God independent of whatever it is that life hands out. There's a kind of serenity, and even the word serenity sort of sounds a little bit like, oh, you know, you're like oblivious to all things, and you're just sort of floating in this sort of zombie-like existence. That's not what it is, because you're very aware of what's going on in life, but what's going on in life is not impacting your blessedness. And so I would even argue that we could, we could almost translate it. Beloved are the poor in spirit. See, beloved are those who mourn. Beloved are the peacemakers. Yeah, Glenn.
2: I think the serenity comes when we're in contact with God on a
1: one-on-one basis in prayer. It can. And other times too. Yeah. But I think that's when I feel the most. Okay. So that's when you feel the, the, uh, Oh, the presence of that. Yeah, the presence of that. Again, I've kind of found that serenity kind of comes and goes. Not that we want it to, but there are some things that can attack that sense of peacefulness, that sense of serenity. All right. When you're anxious about something, when you're, you're dealing with something in life that you can't control, Right. When, when you're waiting for your uh, prescription to be filled and it's just not happening when you have a million other things to do, it's very difficult to have that serenity. But, but what he's talking about here with that blessedness, it's more of a state of something. See, it's a condition of something that goes beyond whatever it is that's going on around me. And that's the point that I'm trying to make. Okay. So he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. So, who are the poor in spirit? It's when you realize your own utter helplessness and need for God, and you trust that he loves you in spite of how you might feel or think at the moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, see, it, it, it kind of goes back to this again. It's that God, in his grace, says, I love you, I I called you to be my own, I I sent Jesus to be your savior, I did all those things for you, and you can have confidence in that, right? But what confidence in that, at least with respect to poor in spirit, means is that I realize that without that, I got nothing, you know? It's kind of like that, uh, one of those verses in in that great old hymn that uh, that we often sing with respect to uh, that this idea that what I, what I bring to the table is nakedness, right? Naked to Thy cross I cling. I mean, really, what is what else is it that I have? There's nothing that I have. It all comes from uh, from God Himself. So, the beloved life principle number five is being poor in spirit enables you to detach the certainty, certainty, c e r t a. I-N-T-Y, certainty of your security from the things of the world and reconnect it to God. See, what is it that gives you that ultimate sense of security in life? It's God himself. But so often what happens is, is that we attach the certainty of our security to the things that the world says we ought to, we can have security in, Right? So if you can, if you're in control of, of most things in your life, then, you, then you, you'll feel secure. If you have enough possessions in your life, if you have enough money, if you have enough likes on Facebook, if you have enough followers on Twitter, I mean, if you have all those things, then you have security. And maybe one of the aspects of... Maturity in life is that, as, as, that uh, as we go on through life, we discover that many of those things that we thought we couldn't live without when we, when we were younger, we discover that they were just a flash in the pan, that they weren't the real thing, and that the, the longer we go in life, we start looking for that deeper stuff, and that starts with our relationship with God. Any thoughts on that? Anybody experience that? Yeah.
2: I I did when my dad first got ill it was about ten years ago. It was a really bad day at the hospital and I just remember sitting I was going to eat. I like couldn't even lift the fork. I mean, I just felt like the lowest. Uh-huh. So went into the chapel, cra- prayed and cried. Still didn't feel better. But when I walked out around the chapel, there ch- a chapel there were three signs. One said, "I receive." Another said, "I believe." And the third one said, "I'm a grateful." I'm grateful. So just reading those things, meant, I believe God is here. Whatever happens. Sure. I receive his blessings and the grateful one really helps me because I was able to find things to be grateful for. I was grateful for the nurses and the people who took care of him. Yeah. So just in that instance, just seeing those three so that we hear all the time. Yeah. We hear all the time. It was enough to remind me and that was a God smack. Yeah. It was a good God smack.
1: A good God smack. Now we know there's two kinds of God smacks. Okay. All right. Yes. Good. That's Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Let's maybe make that a challenge for this week. In addition to the fact you're going to keep a log now on, you know, what's happening in your life. But also we'll keep track of the number of God smacks that happen in your life and feel free to categorize them as uh, good or bad or up or down or however you want to do that. Very good. One more thought and then we're going to quit for today.
2: Well, I think she gave a perfect example of verse one that we kind of glossed over and that is he saw all the crowds. He wasn't preaching this to the crowds. Right. He went away from the crowds yes. and he took his disciples, his close friends with him yeah. and we need to do that as well sure when we're in trouble and we need to be reassured yeah stepping aside going away from the crowds to reconnect with god before we have to face and sometimes that that stepping away from the crowd is just taking a deep breath
1: yeah sure. um
2: so anyhow yeah. that was a good example of what yeah. verse one talked about
1: or turning off your phone right Or unplugging. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. Ooh, now we're getting kind of personal here. All right. All right. So we're going to pick it up next week with uh, verse four and then we'll be working our, oh, wait a minute. We won't be. Wait a minute. I just remembered Easter. Okay. So Easter next week, we don't have class next week, but Phil and I are actually our goal. Let me say it this way. Our goal is to actually be able to do something where we can put it on the podcast so that there is something there. We want to try to keep the continuity of that, but um, he hasn't informed me yet what it is we're going to do, and, and, uh, and I'm not, uh, you know, inclined to think of it myself, all right? So, uh, so that's how we're going to do that, so just sort, of, just sort of stay tuned, if you will, and then in two weeks, we'll pick this up. Oh yeah, maybe so. Okay, yeah. Okay, all right. Let's uh, let's go to God in prayer, Heavenly Father. Thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for the way that Your Word, oh my heavens, it just speaks to us in such powerful ways. And now as we begin to kind of work our way through the through the. Uh, Uh, the Beatitudes, we're, we're learning in greater depth about what it means to be beloved and what it means to belong to you. And, and more importantly, or more significantly, or as significantly, what it means to have the opportunity to show that to other people, to witness to it and uh, to let it guide our lives. So Lord, now as we uh, head into Holy Week this week, as we uh, prepare in our remembrances of what your son Jesus did for us on the cross and then the, the resurrection at, uh, at Easter, uh, give us that great joy, that serenity, that sense of blessedness as we're in the world, but not of the world. And as the promises you give to us of your love and, uh, and the assurances we have are there for us to believe in and to count on. Uh, watch over us, dear Lord, until we're together again, and we pray that in Jesus'
0: name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email to Podcast at gmail.com with your question or comment, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming episode. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement, our tagline is sharing his light. And that means sharing the light of Christ through worship, study of his word, and loving our neighbor, whomever or wherever they may be. That's the reason we're bringing this podcast to you in your home, on your commute, to your weekly Bible study, your personal devotion, whatever. We want to share his light with you. If this podcast has brought any value to you in some way, whether it is getting to know God and his word better, looking at a particular message in the Bible a different way, inspiring you or giving you some motivation throughout your week, if you want to help us in our endeavor to share his light, please take just a few minutes to go to our podcast page in the iTunes store and write us a review. Not only will your review provide us here at Messiah with valuable feedback we can use to help improve the podcast and better deliver his message to you, but your review will also help us climb the rankings and spread this podcast and Christ's word to more people. If you want to know more about Messiah's Upper Room Podcast or Messiah Lutheran Church in general, you can visit our website at MessiahLutheranPodcast.com, where you can find links to all of our previous episodes, notes used during each class that are available for download, and where you can find us on the social networks. There we also have a subscribe section that will point you directly to where you can subscribe and receive Messiah's Upper Room podcast each week through iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, basically whatever your podcast catching application of choice may be. Thank you again so much for listening. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.